You're listening to TIP. Hey, how's everyone doing out there? So on today's show, we bring you the master of small cap investing, Mr. Eric Cinnamon. Eric has been an investor for two and a half decades, and his approach is very different than most people we interview. Instead of analyzing the companies that most people pay attention to, Eric is down in the trenches looking at the 10Ks and 10Qs of businesses under a billion dollars. Eric is listening to over 100 conference calls per quarter, and he stays totally immersed in the part of the economy where the rubber meets the road. So during today's show, we talk to Eric about the common themes he's hearing on the quarterly meetings, and we also talk to him about how he determines the intrinsic value of a small cap business. In addition to that, Eric also provides some interesting comments about the current market conditions. So sit back and get ready for a highly informed and thoughtful Eric Cinnamon. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. So uh, welcome to the show, Eric Cinnamon. Always awesome to have you. Uh, We were really looking forward to recording this one. Thanks, Preston. Uh, Thanks again for having me back. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So the last time you were on the show, you had briefly mentioned your typical day of conducting research. And I would like you to kind of talk about this idea a little bit more to our audience so they can kind of get an idea how diligent you are. Because I've read some of your reports that you uh, send out, and it is absolutely mind-blowing the amount of research you do and how much attention to detail you pay for so many companies. So talk us through the quarterly calls. Tell us about the volume, like the number of calls that you listen to, and just kind of walk us through your day of research. Yeah, I guess it depends where you are in the quarter. A lot of time lately, I've been doing maintenance research, which is going through a lot of these quarterly conference calls and earnings reports. So you know that takes about six weeks to get through about 200 calls. I follow 300 names, but they're on different fiscal years, you know, some of them. So uh, about 200 calls, it takes, you know, I can get through maybe 20 a day sometimes, you know, it's a lot of reading. But fortunately, you know, these are smaller cap companies. They're a little easier to understand and their calls are, uh, you know, they're still about an hour. But the businesses themselves, it's a little easier than, say, uh, trying to figure out General Electric, you know, back in the heyday. You know, you're listening to so many calls and I don't know anybody that listens to this volume of calls. And so like, when you say you're listening to that many calls, can you pick up immediately if there's problems in a business because you're listening to so many calls? Like, Well, I should mention, you know, I read most of them. So a lot of it's transcripts, but it is important at times, you know, when I was running the portfolio, my top holdings, I would tend to listen to those. So I think tone is important when you're really trying to understand what management is trying to communicate. But, you know, the, the routine, again, is 10, 20 calls a day, getting a better understanding of the businesses, getting a better understanding of what is going on in their current environment. It's not a lot of valuation work. You know, I'm really trying to get a feel for where they are in their profit cycle. You know, what are the variables that are currently impacting their free cash flows and helping me better understand the business, helping me better value the business? Do you feel like you have a better idea of how a certain industry is moving because you listen to these different calls? Yeah. And then you get a better feel for their suppliers, their customers, you know, the vendors and what is influencing, you know, again, their margins at the time. You just think about right now, 
the trucking industry. You know, the cost of the trucking industry is growing 20%. You know, I do follow most of the truckers. So you can listen to their calls and get a feel for what their customers are going through. And then you get on their customers' calls and you say, man, these rates are going up 10, 20% on us. So you can triangulate quite a bit in the raw material costs. You can follow some of the suppliers of companies, some of their competitors. So it's, it's good to follow. You know, I find a, a fixed opportunity set. Not only do you get a good feel for all the different industries, but you get a good feel again for their customers, suppliers, competitors, those sort of things, which again, I think helps a lot in, in valuing these companies. Yes, Eric, and let's continue this discussion about valuations because I guess what most investors would do and with good reason is that they will look at the past five or 10 years and then they would use those cash flows and discount them and come up with intrinsic value one way or the other. I know that we also need to consider the business cycle, right? That's something that you have been starting for a long time because if we are, say, at the peak of the business cycle, those earnings might not show the right picture of, of the true value of the company. So could you talk to us more about where you think we are in the business cycle? I think we are similar to 1999 and 2006. I mean, profits are extremely high. Demand is strong on average. You know, there's certainly some industries where it's not as brisk. But I mean, interest rates are showing us this, I think, right now. And that if we go higher from here, given the tightness in labor, the tightness in the economy... I do not believe interest rates are going to cooperate. So what would be the indicator for you that we've transitioned to the next phase? Margins dropping, unemployment starting to rise? I just had this conversation with Jesse. It's kind of interesting. I think some people believe that rising inflation will crimp margins, right? I don't think that. You know, I'm seeing margins actually hold up because I think they're going to be able to pass on price increases. So what I'm envisioning is interest rates ending the cycle, right? Higher discount rates, because you can't have these 100, 200, 300 increases in discount rates and multiples stay where they are. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. So I'm not a believer that margins are going to decline initially because of rising costs, but I believe rising costs will be the catalyst for higher rates, which will be the catalyst for the end of the market cycle, just like the past cycles. You know, this this isn't much different. And then you have margins impacted. Once the cycle ends, right? I don't see profits ending this cycle. We saw that in 15, 16, where we did have a profit recession and the cycle didn't end. You know, it, it hung in there pretty well. And that was because rates stayed low, right? And, and people remember, remember Tina, there's no alternative. That was going strong then. But, you know, when rates go up, again, two, 300 basis points at these levels, at these valuation multiples, you know, that's a considerable risk that I think eventually will impact margins, but it'll be because of demand, not price, not cost. So back to the trucker comment, what's the main driver for the 20% increase? Labor is a huge issue right now. There's a huge labor shortage and they just implemented some electronic logging regulations. So it's making it much more difficult for truck drivers to, lack of better words, cheat on their hours. (laughs) There's a huge labor shortage. Hmm. If you want to make a good living right now, if you're out of work, absolute return investor, you know, you could uh, take up truck driving right now. It's a very good occupation to go into right now. So as a person who listens to all these calls, what's your comment on the Elon Musk call that happened just this past <laughs> week where he didn't even want to answer one of the analyst questions? Like right. as a person who listens to so much, 
how would you interpret that? Is this just noise or is there something to this? Yeah, I wish I could comment on that. Is it, that's a little out of my league, right? <laughs> I mean, I can relate a little bit. Some of the sell side analysts, some of these calls, you know, some of the questions are, they're not irrelevant, but they might be more towards, hey, will you fill out my model for me? <laughs> like, you know, and I've, I've seen, you know, where management at times is like, come on, you know, do your job. You're the research <laughs> analyst. I'm not just supposed to fill it in for you. Yeah. So I, I could understand where there would be a point. I don't know if that was the point. You know, again, I don't follow them, but I can understand where someone can lose their patience for some of the questions. You know, there's a lot of good questions, but but again, I, I'd say you know every call there's that analyst that asks management to really fill in their model in a indirect way. Now, why only small caps? I mean, we just briefly talked about Tesla here that you don't follow, and one of the reasons might be because it's not a small cap company. But why not follow all the big companies too? Or some of them, I'm sure that would be mispricing there as well. Well, you really could. I mean, you could apply absolute return investing to all market caps and you could do it international as well. But I found by having a fixed opportunity set, you know, that's really allowed me to uh, get to know those businesses well. And, you know, we go back to going through all these companies every quarter. I think if I was starting from scratch and I just started following these companies, that would be much more difficult. It'd be much more challenging to understand these businesses as well. I wouldn't be able to go through some of the calls and, you know, I read them all, but there are certain questions that I'm like, okay, you know, I already know this, you know, so you just move on and uh, you can get through more calls quickly that way. So let me ask you this, what are the, like the top two or the top three big trends that you're hearing on all these different calls? Um, I would say uh, the biggest trends I've really started to notice in uh, 2017 is rising corporate costs wages, you know, the ability to pass on rising costs is also new. I think the psychology has changed in corporate America that now it's actually acceptable to ask your customer for a price increase. You know, 2015, 2016 is a lot different. You know, it's disinflationary. That shifted in 2017. And we could talk more about, you know, why that shift occurred. Another trend I'm noticing, you know, business is pretty good. You know, it's it's interesting in that I still remain uninvested, but overall, the companies I follow are uh, doing fairly well. You know, so I'm not really uh, bearish on the operating environment. In fact, I think things are pretty tight right now. I'm noticing more mentioning of capacity constraints, inability to find adequate labor, the type of things you would see at the end or in a part of a cycle that is pretty healthy. Things are going pretty well for most companies right now. Would you say that the inflation is getting a little hot or is it just healthy at this point based on the calls? I do not think we're currently in some sort of runaway inflation mode, but I think the trend has definitely shifted. You know, a lot of the price increases I'm seeing are in the low to mid single digits. It's not outrageous, but it's there. To me, it's very obvious. And I think I see it, I'm fairly certain I see it building in the pipeline. So when you see on these are here on these calls that they don't increase pricing right away, you know, it's their costs go up and then they respond. They don't raise prices right away. There will be a lag, you know, several month lag. That's what I'm seeing now. I'm seeing cost pricing power, things I really haven't seen in a long time. You know, the last time we had this type of environment, I think was probably 1999 where uh, wages were growing four or 5% and the labor market was very tight. And I'm seeing that currently. 
You know, Eric, a lot of the people that we talk to, they're pretty bearish on the fundamentals just because of like the PE ratio, the Schiller PE being the second highest it's ever been and the history of the market. I'm assuming you share some of this bearish sentiment, but where would we be wrong as far as like this thing could run a lot more and, and the reasons why? Yeah, I mean, we could definitely be wrong. You know, I think back in the early 90s when Home Depot was one of the most popular stocks. It was very expensive. And, uh, you know, a typical value investor wouldn't touch it. But it never crashed. You know, it, it sort of stayed in this channel for 10 years. <laughs> I mean, I need a chart to verify that. But what happened was earnings caught up with price over time. So it never crashed. And maybe that's what happens in the cycle. You know, maybe for five, 10 years, prices just stay in a narrow range and fundamentals catch up to valuation, oh. you know, to where that normalized earnings of Schiller P goes from low 30s to back to 16, 17, just on earnings growth over time. That's, I think, one of the risks. And maybe, too, the Federal Reserve eliminates the business cycle, right? It's possible. I still believe in the business cycle. I mean, if I think about all the variables of the companies I follow, what impacts their margins? They haven't changed, right? Just look at the energy credit bust of 15, 16. The credit got pulled away and the energy industry plummeted. You know, CapEx plummeted and earnings plummeted. Companies went bankrupt. If the variables and impact uh, margins of industries haven't changed, why should we expect the profit cycle and aggregate change, right? You know, I'm still a believer. And if I wasn't, if I did believe that, that the profit cycle was dead and I, you know, I, I believe that valuations wouldn't revert to the mean. You know, I obviously wouldn't be positioned how I am today. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, 
A talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Eric, you have this comment about inflation and the potential catalyst about how to change the inflation environment. So could you elaborate a bit more on that? Well, I go back to 2014. And at that time, the middle of 2014, things were going very well and things were starting to tighten up. And, you know, obviously that, that was back when, you know, we started exiting the QE3 discussion. And we also got a bump from a very cold winter in Q1. So the momentum was there. Earnings growth was there. And then the dollar spike at the end of 2014, if you remember. And then the commodity stocks and commodity industries took a huge hit. Or the prices of the commodity prices took a huge hit. And I believe that period, we really had, we didn't have a recession. It was close. You know, we had a couple of quarters, very low growth. Uh, but it wasn't negative, but we did have an earnings recession. You know, we had five or six quarters of negative earnings. What happened there is that bought the cycle some time. You know, it took a breather, and then it also allowed the foreign central banks, the ECB and the Bank of Japan, to step in and increase their quantitative easing. I mean, remember the ECB started to buy corporate bonds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a big deal. Yeah, right. I mean, that just that really used things up spreads tightened and then the energy industry was able to issue equity and debt again and before you know it things healed in the energy industry and i believe that was a big deal because you know, we go back to triangulating the companies all the different industries i follow well when the energy bus hit it wasn't just energy industry that was affected you know that was a big credit generator that energy industry people were throwing credit at it raising a lot of capital and that was spilling over into the economy it was kind of like a mini housing boom, right? Remember the housing boom? It didn't just stay in housing. You know, it spilled over into the economy. The same thing happened with energy. All that credit, all that growth was spilling over into the broad economy. And that went away for 15, 16. And that's why we had sort of had that flat earnings growth, flat economy, and really, you know, not a very impressive stock market either. I mean, for most of, until later 2016. So that all changed. And now the energy industry is back and it's turned from, a headwind to a tailwind. And now you're seeing, you know, when the energy bus hit, I was seeing companies report X Texas. You know, I've never seen that before, you know, like, because this new non-gap, we're going to report our results and we're going to separate Texas from everything else. Now they don't report X Texas now that it's helping. But yeah, so just restaurants, retail, you know, we go back to trucking, industrial cyclicals, you know, things that sell valves, pipes, steel, you name it, railroads, a lot of industries were influenced or impacted by the bust and now the revival. You know, for me, the whole energy sector really feels a lot like 2007 getting into 2008 timeframe where we went on a really big bull market. And it kind of feels like we're at the start of that. Would you agree that things across the board kind of feel like that's what's happening here? You know, rig counts are up 30% year over year. CapEx, though, I would say... Right now, you know, and it could change, but right now it seems a little more disciplined than $100 oil, you know, early 2014. So, you know, I'm a little reluctant to say we're going to spike like we did then, but it's possible. You know, anytime you have this industry capital, they go, you know, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember a time when they stay disciplined for long. It's just in their <laughs> blood. 
you know, they love production growth. They love it. And a lot of them are compensated on that. Some of their comp models are based on production growth. So uh, that's what they like to do. You know, they're born to drill. And now the economics are just at 70. You know, they're pretty good. I was on one call. I think it was Patterson UTI. The CEO was saying, he was like, you know, we were growing at $50 oil. You know, things were coming back at 50. You know, now we're at 70. So to your point, you know, we, we could be back off to the races. We had a brief conversation with uh, Jesse Felder on our mastermind discussion about gold. I'm kind of curious where you're seeing gold miner stocks. Do you follow any gold miner stocks? I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that stuff. Yeah, I, I was introduced to the uh, miner sector in 2014, 2015. We talked about the rising dollar and the collapse in a lot of the energy names. You know, all the miners were devastated. As a value investor, you know, that's sort of where you start to look around when no one wants to own them. And, you know, I go back to that period and it was very, very difficult to own and follow. But I got to know the industry well because there were so few places to find value. You know, this was a little oasis of value. And I've spent a ton of time on it because there really wasn't anything else to work on. You know, I like when you're in a patient positioning, when you, you, you have a considerable amount of your holdings, you know, T-bills. There is this uneasiness of not owning anything tangible, you know. Yeah. So that is a risk. You know, the, being patient is not risk free. You know, you're incurring tremendous opportunity costs, and obviously, you're incurring risk to the loss of your purchasing power. You know, I much rather be. You know, I don't like holding cash. I much rather have a fully invested portfolio with you know seventy cent dollars, high quality small cap businesses. So currently, I do like the idea of owning some miners. I don't own any now. I'm getting through earnings season. There's a couple I'm interested in maybe owning again. You know, I sold the miners in the spring of 2016, the summer 2016. So I had a very fortunate exit point there. And they hadn't rallied from them. In fact, some of them are down considerably from that their peaks in the summer of 16. So I do find some interesting where they're trading below what I believe is a fair replacement cost for their assets. So what are you know, if you had to name one or two companies that you really like right now, what would those names be? You know, the six-month T-bill just has exceeded, I think it's 2.05 now. Yeah, and then, it's getting up there. And the two years at 2.53. So if those were stocks, you know, I think they would compete very well versus the S&P 500. Not only from a dividend yield perspective, but from a normalized free cash flow yield, you know, they're getting up there. So talk about this a little bit more for people. Explain exactly what you mean by that. Well, I'm saying if you normalize cash flows for the average company, you know, the average stock on my potential buy list is a little over 30 times earnings. You know, that's not even normalized. And price to sales are 2.5 times. Very expensive. The S&P normalized earnings, I think it's around 32 times. And maybe you know this better than I do. Yeah. So that's a free cash flow yield. If you say earnings are a free cash flow, and that can be an assumption that, that maybe you could argue, but let's just assume that. So you have 3% free cash flow yield. Of all the earnings were paid out to you by the S&P 500 on a normalized basis, you'd receive a 3% coupon. But right now, you could buy a, a two-year treasury and almost accomplish that risk-free. You know, So two and a half risk-free or 3% with risk. Know, margins. <laughs> if margins normalize, you know, <laughs> that coupon gets cut in half. Right? Yep. And with rates up, you know, the, the stocks really haven't responded so far. I mean, the Russell 2000s right at its record high right now. Well, and I think what's interesting about you saying the two-year, your risk, because it's in such short duration on the uh, price, is so minuscule. 
that right. uh, I mean, you're you're getting all of that, so you don't really have to worry about the resale value being impacted as if it was like a fifteen or thirty year bond. So I mean, the yield on the short end of the yield curve is coming up like a freaking rocket right now. And it's, uh, it's yeah, fangs. It looks like a fang stock. Yeah, it does. It's yeah. crazy how it's fast. Exciting. It's exciting. I find it exciting. You know, I was at a, a social event a few weeks ago and everyone was talking about their favorite stocks. And I was like, have you seen the two year? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then everyone so grabbed, like, all right. Yeah. Everyone grabbed their pillow and <laughs> yeah, no, but you know, it's, uh, I, I find it exciting to, to just watch yields go up and the market not pay attention. I mean, if you, people are talking about the lower taxes, right. Going to 21%. But if you assume a hundred to 200 basis point increase in your discount rate, you know, and say your discounting rate, you know, maybe five, six percent. You know, I don't know what people are using now, but it, that would have to be a low rate. That takes all that away, right? Yeah. Uh, from a valuation perspective, the valuation math, the higher discount rate takes completely away the tax rate benefit. But all people talk about is the tax rate benefit, not what's happening with interest rates. You know what's so funny, Eric, is we're talking about you know two and a half percent on the two year and. After you account for three percent inflation, you know your real return is a negative point five percent, but you're comparing it to cash, which is basically a negative three percent return. I mean, we're really if we could just step back, you know, twenty years ago and play this conversation for ourselves. No, you're absolutely right. It'd you know, be insane. I go back to, to 1999. You know, I talked about that's the last time I remember the labor market being this tight. You know, what were short rates then? Five? You know, yeah. I know that's where they were in 07, yeah. right? They were at like five and a half it, at the, it, on the 10-year. And you just, if I just read this quarter's calls, Q1 calls, and I had no idea where interest rates were. I read these calls and I saw all the commentary on cost, inflation, wages, the labor market, and saw margins where they are and top line growing again. I would have to guess that we would be close to five or 6% on the short end. Yeah. You know, because if my companies are raising prices three to five percent, why shouldn't short rates be yeah. around that level? I mean, we are at one and a half to one seven five on the Fed funds rate, and you have clear evidence of companies raising prices. Like this isn't, you know, the the CPI last week came out in like point one or something, and I just shook my head. I said, this is incredible. You know, here you have corporate America telling us. I mean, they usually don't tell us, right? Because pricing is a very sensitive topic. You really don't want to broadcast that. You might upset someone or you might you know, show your hand to your competitor. But they are showing, they are telling us on these calls, they are saying inflation, I mean, they are actually saying this. They're saying this. Inflation is a problem. <laughs> you know? yeah. This is how we're going to address it. You know, your comment, Eric, really reminds me of the interview that we did with Bill Miller here on the podcast. And he said, looking where things are right now, this could be somewhere around the 5% range. And back then, you know, back in 2000, it was a shillopy of what, more than 40. And interest rates were tripled back then. So why couldn't it happen again? I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about that, Eric. Because I think people believe the system can't handle it. You know, the safety net for rates is they can't go that higher because it would be a complete disaster. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. Hey, how that right. argument hold up for housing, right? It was the same argument for housing. Just looking at the trend line of the 10 year treasury, and like you can see that it's buttoned up against that 35 year trend that we've been on. 
And I don't think anybody wants to see what happens when it breaks that trend, because I think that it's going to be uh, some interesting times in the markets if that you know actually materializes. And, and, and I'm with you. If housing rates go up in any substantial kind of way, there is going to be some serious problems that happen across the country. I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, and the long bonds is interesting too. It, you know, it's hard to say what the bond market is communicating to us because the Fed really hasn't, you know, reduced its balance sheet considerably, right? So we we still don't know what the real rate is, right? It's still artificially suppressed. But if we could gather information from the long end, I would speculate that it's telling us short end is going to continue to rise, but eventually it causes an accident, and the long end is going to be right. Right. Where we have another deflationary event. So I always say where's inflation now and I'm seeing it. It's very clear to me. But I also say if we have a financial accident and valuations revert, all bets are off, you know, because then demand plummets. Right. And then we're back to that QE4, QE5 and then regroup and let's start again. But in that transition period, there will be a slowdown. I think what the market is really surprised about is how fast this has changed. I mean, the one year, two year, you know, it's just, it's been taking off like a rocket. It's almost as if the two years running the show, you know, <laughs> it seems yeah. to be functioning and I like it. And it's, I'm not only am I getting paid more to hold these short-term treasuries, but I like the fact that it just feels like markets are functioning again, at least on the short end. I think it's the QT that's happening, the quantitative it tightening. Yeah. Right. In the, in the supply, maybe it's just that basic, you know, demand supply, right? maybe diminishing or it has right the central banks are or the fed at least isn't buying bonds and they're they're selling them and now we have fiscal deficits rising right so we got to issue more debt let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors buy low sell high it's easy to say hard to do for example high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now demand is dropping and prices are falling even for many of the best assets It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. 
the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I'm curious to hear how the two-year treasury, if ever, would change your approach to how much and how you invest in, in small cap stocks, like we talked about before, is this a macro narrative that is changing your portfolio strategy right now? Well, you know, it's really, for me, it's valuation-based. So I can't buy these companies. And I don't use, I have never used these risk-free rates to value businesses. I think about what my required rate of return is as an investor. And historically, that's been 10 to 15% on small cap stocks. So I'm thinking it from a perspective as a credit analyst first, what do I require for this business? And then I apply a risk premium to that. So that's how I get my 10 to 15%. So that's my required rate of return. And at today's prices, there's just no way to get that, that type of return to small caps, right? So, so for me, even though I might I have a good feel for the macro from my bottom up work, which does lead me to believe that you know rates are rising for a good reason, and that would be negative for stocks. I'm not making a call on stocks. I'm a horrible market timer. I'm just saying if I was fully invested and I was paying 30 times plus for normalized earnings, I would be very concerned with rates where they are because they are competing with you right now in a risk-free basis. And you're in a business with uncertain cash flows. So talk to us about valuation. Warren Buffett always mentions intrinsic value. How do you think through your valuation of a stock pick? Do you use discount cash flows, multiples, a combination of approaches? I use a discount cash flow method. It's a lot simpler than most. You know, I talked about the discount rate of 10 to 15%. So that's my required rate of return. That's what I want on my equities. And, and over my career, you know, from 98 to 16, you know, that's what I achieved on the equities. So people always say, you know, what's, if you don't use a benchmark, if you're an absolute return investor, what's your hurdle rate? Or what do you compare yourself to? And I say, well, the return I'm attempting to achieve, you know, that's my required rate of return. That's what I'm, I'm trying to achieve. So I use that 10 to 15% discount rate. And then I use a cash flow assumption that I normalize. You know, if you have a business over a cycle that 
generates 7% op EBIT margins on the trough and 13 on the peak, you know, you kind of use a normalized margin to come up with a normalized cash flow. So 10 to 50% required return, normalized cash flow, and then a perpetual growth rate that is more in line with nominal GDP. Because most of the companies I follow are very mature. You know, they're not growing 15, 20% a year. Buddy duddy in line with the economy companies. So you're valuing them into perpetuity. You're not just doing 10 years or anything like that. Right. Yeah, because I, I've discovered over time, you know, I tried this when I was a lot younger. I thought I knew everything. <laughs> I didn't. But I thought I could actually predict what the cash flows of a company would be five years out. Well, I quickly learned that's impossible. <laughs> you know? yeah. So I said, let's quit trying to guess each year, normalize the cycle, which then you can actually, I think, get a much more accurate valuation because you could be wrong in year three, but then maybe you're right in year seven. It all averages out. And I've, I've found normalizing keeps me out of trouble on the upside and downside. At what time frame do you switch over to basically the inflation rate? About 10 years, five years? No, I do it right away. So I'm using almost like a um, perpetual bond valuation. It's normalized cash flow over K minus G. So if I'm, say, I'm at 12% cap rate, which would include, say, a 7% required return on the debt, 5% equity risk premium, and then I subtract a growth rate of you know 4%, then I'm capping that business's cash flows at eight, eight percent, ten million dollar, right? On the eight, cap it was on a hundred twenty million valuation. So, uh, but there's a lot of work that goes into that normalized cash flow, and then a lot of work that goes into that discount rate because you need to know everything about that business to get a good feel for, you know, again, as a credit analyst, what you should require as a return, and then as an equity analyst or equity risk premium what you should require for the added risk of owning the equity. So that does that takes considerable time getting to know the business. And it's why I like to follow the same companies because I want I, you know I want a good feel for the businesses. It's a lot easier if you've been following for 20 years, you know, because you've seen them, you've seen everything almost <laughs> that they've done and what they've said, have they followed through with it? And every cycle, have they gained share, have they lost share? You know, you just see so much more and get a higher degree of confidence in your valuation by sticking with more mature businesses. So Say that you are seeing this company and it has a declining or say a stagnant top line. And well, that would probably also be one of the reasons why it'd be priced at a very attractive multiple. And then you're trying to base your valuation based on that. So talk to us, how do you look at the importance of the top line? It's extremely important. We talked about these rising costs and these pricing maneuvers by companies. Now, if you want to know the health of a company, you really need to be looking at volume units sold, you know, services sold, because price is a big part of it. There's a lot of restaurants now with negative traffic trends, but they have positive comps because their average ticket is up, you know, three to 5%. So uh, that's something that's very important right now is top line, but the health of the top line, is it price or is it volume? You know, it's a big difference. And that can be the difference between a healthy economic expansion and stagflation. So Eric, I'm curious how you handle filtering and finding new companies that you're adding into the mix. Is it just something that you kind of happen to find or is there a method that you're using to filter these kind of results? You know, when I was uh, running a fund, I've used Bloomberg a lot, their screens, and I would have standard screens that uh, screen on market cap and profitability. I would try not to weed out too many companies because, again, I normalize cash flows. So I don't mind if a company isn't generating trough results. But that can knock out a lot of companies out of screens because their earnings will be down and their valuations will look elevated. 
So I try to avoid that by being inclusive as possible. I would say most of my ideas have come through just general screening like that, going through a long list of names. But as my possible bios has grown and sort of stabilized, I think more recently or in the past few years, more of my new ideas come from working on companies. When I do my due diligence, learning about their suppliers, competitors, customers, and sometimes I'll bump into some of their public counterparts and you know, they're like, this is interesting too. You know, and then it just goes on my list. And there'll be some industries I thought I would never own, you know, like the call centers. I never thought I would own a call center. I wasn't sure if they were high quality businesses. So yeah, so new industries occasionally will come on. But when I go through screens now, you know, I've been doing it for so long, it's almost like, you know, I've seen this, you know, I know this, I know why I don't have it on my possible buy list. And it's very rare that I come up with a new name. And if I do, it's usually a you know maybe an IPO that doesn't have a long enough operating history to include on the, on the possible buy list. So it doesn't change. You know, usually maybe a name will go on once a month, and a name will come off once a month. And my whole goal there is just to continue to improve the quality of my opportunity set. Of the sectors that you follow, where do you see the bull case, and where do you see the bear case? Bullish would probably be commodities. I think energy's done fairly well, and energy, and on average, continues to have quite a bit of debt on, on their balance sheets. Some of the service companies are, are better off, but many of the EMPs still have a little too much debt for me. I do like some of the precious metal miners. I plan to work on um, Alamos Gold, ALG. It's a debt-free precious metal miner. They have two mines in Canada, one mine in Mexico, or actually two mines in Mexico, but one that's actually of value. The other one's uh, almost full depletion. It has no debt, over 200 million in cash. So it's an interesting uh, potential buy idea that I plan on working on. So there are some, I think, miners now trading below tangible book or that sort of replacement cost valuation I work on. Yeah, I was, I'm looking at the top line on ALG and it's got a nice steady growth to it. It's really nice. Yeah, the recent rise in gold has helped. They've also done an acquisition, so that might uh, aid it a little more. But the main thing is... Their top three mines are generating free cash flow. So often when people think about miners, they're horrible businesses, right? I mean, that's what we were taught. But a good mine can actually generate cash and considerable cash over a cycle. Once it's paid off, you know, <laughs> the development part is the CapEx heavy part. But once it's developed, I mean, you still have sustainable CapEx. But once it's developed, you can generate a good bit of cash if it's a long asset, you know, in their average reserve life is over 12 years. So you've got 12 years of cash flow generation, considerable cash flow generation at these prices. You look at the energy industry, you know, what's an average well's life? You know, they go through a well pretty quickly, the reserves very quickly, you know, majority of the reserves sometimes in a year. Well, a good mine, you know, the Young Davidson mine at uh, Alamos is a 15 year mine. So even if prices decline and you're not assuming financial risk, which you're not assuming much because they have no debt and over 200 million in cash, you can get through the cycle. With a lot of energy names, it's a little harder. You know, not only do you have financial risk because many of them have debt, but the reserves are very short. You have to keep drilling every year, right, to keep replacing those reserves in that production. Where a mining company, those mines again, you know, will last over a decade. Very interesting. And how about the uh, sector that you're bearish on? It's a great question. It's so broad, this cycle. Usually, you know, it's pretty easy. I think the last time you were on, we talked a little bit about the retail sector. It had gone through just total punishment. Most of it was just because everyone was scared to death of Amazon. And I think the, the traffic in a lot of these malls is way down. How do you see retail today and kind of moving forward? 
Yeah, so we talked about retail the last time we, we talked, and I think we both thought that the sector had been beaten down considerably, and I would agree with that. Really, the easier comps over a year, you know, that's sort of to be expected. But also, you've had many of their competitors go bankrupt, and that liquidation has worked itself through. Inventories are in fairly good shape. So, you know, I'm not sure I'm very enthusiastic about a lot of the valuations in retail. But, you know, I do believe the operating environment is in the process of healing and improving. And I think you're going to see more examples of full price sales because inventories are in better shape. And there's more companies getting comfortable with leaving that sort of promotional mindset, which I thought we saw a lot of in 2015, 2016, where promotions were running uh, very aggressively. That I'm seeing dying down, which is going to help comps and profitability. Awesome. Well, the last question I have for you, Eric, is just who do you stalk on Twitter? Who is a person (laughs) you pay a lot of attention to? Or, I mean, it can be multiple people that you really get a lot of value out of their comments or what they're posting or what they're writing about. You know, I'm not on Twitter. (laughs) I should be. But I I was actually talking with our friend Jesse Felder about this because I I know he's pretty active on it and uh, he gets a lot of value out of it. I just right now with my opportunity set the size that it is, I've even considered narrowing it down maybe to 200 names. You know, most of my time is spent on trying to keep up with, with the companies I follow. So I just I just haven't had the time to get on Twitter and follow uh, some of the brighter minds on Wall Street. So that might be a disadvantage for me. Sometimes you, that might be an advantage too. I love it. You know, my, earlier in my career, I read more, you know, books. But as my opportunity set grew, my bias grew. And then I started to find my own way. You know, I remember when I first started the industry, you know, I would be interested in what Mario Gabelli owned, you know, Third Avenue, Longleaf, you know, I would kind of pick through their names. But over time, you know, I learned, you know, they make mistakes too. Why not just know your opportunity set better than most? And let's face it, some of the best managers that run billions and billions, they can't do that by themselves. They have a team of analysts. And you might be cherry picking off a 24-year analyst who just got out of grad school. You know? <laughs> so, 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 you you know, you got to be a little careful there because there's this false sense of security that the great firm owns it, that, you know, a ton of work has been done. And maybe it has. Plus, just knowing knowing the names well, I think it allows you to act more decisively. When those opportunities do appear, you don't freeze because, hey, I know this company. You know, I've been following it for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, I'm so confident in this valuation. You know, I'm so glad the stock's where it is. I know I can buy it. And, and there's just no second guessing because you've done the work. Well, Eric, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening that want to read some of your reports that you're doing on all these different companies and just learn a little bit more about you. So if they want to learn more, where should they go? You know, I run a blog. It's free and it's ericcinnamon.com. So it's pretty easy to find. You can subscribe if you like. I'm planning to keep writing until I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, I highly encourage you to go there. Check this out. You won't even believe the quality and quantity of Eric's writing. It is totally awesome. So uh, guys, make sure you go there and check that out in our show notes. So Eric, thank you so much for joining us. All right, guys. That was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We'll see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. 
To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.